to be honest, like we should be ashamed of ourselves for putting mountain lions to this breaking point. But I'm glad it's been a call to action. And I'm glad that certain people, or a lot of people have responded in the way we should have a long time ago at trying to make these mountain ranges whole again and giving them the open space that they need, choosing to coexist with the ones that are sharing space with us. And yeah, investing in, in their future. Which is not just their future, but it's all of our futures because their presence means a healthy ecosystem. It means an optimal quality of life for the wildlife that live in all these ecosystems. And that includes us as well. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever looked around a bustling city and wondered how much wildlife was there living just out of sight. Or maybe in sight if you also happen to be watching a coyote use a crosswalk. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're examining places we don't normally associate with wildlife, because today we're talking urban ecology with Miguel Ordeñana, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we'll discuss behavioral plasticity, a beloved Angelino mountain lion named P-22, what it means to be an obligate carnivore, why raccoons and coyotes are better adapted to city living than mountain lions, Ring Cams, the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, which is going to be the largest wildlife crossing in the world, and so much more. In fact, Miguel was so generous with his expertise and shared so much with me during our interview and on such a broad array of urban ecological topics that I could not possibly fit it all into one episode. So right now, you're listening to part one, which is about all of the things I mentioned before. And in the next episode, part two, Miguel discusses a totally different set of topics relating to urban ecology. So that one will be about urban bats and also about better and more inclusive ways of engaging with the human populations in our cities when we talk about wildlife and conservation. You're not going to want to miss part two of this series, so make sure you're following the podcast wherever you listen so you'll get notified when that episode drops. And if you'd like to see this podcast grow and reach more people, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron for as little as $4 a month. Your support allows me to go out and get interviews in the field and buy necessary audio equipment and subscriptions. And now as season two winds down and I prepare for season three, I'm hoping to start reinvesting in the show to help it continue to grow and reach a larger audience. Because I believe that everyone deserves to be connected with the natural world around them which is exactly what this podcast is all about. Plus, if you become a patron, you'll get access to all kinds of video and audio extras from the interviews, as well as the ability to get your questions asked during interviews. This is a completely independently produced podcast, and every single patron helps a ton. So big thank you to everyone who's already supporting and making this show possible. If you'd like to become part of the Patreon community, you can find me at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. There are two more quick, easy things you can do to help the show. One is to simply share your favorite episode with a friend, family member, local scout leader, homesteader, or anyone who comes to mind when you're trying to decide who to take hiking with you this weekend. And the other thing you can do is just to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Those are so appreciated. I treasure every single one of them. I actually take a screenshot of all the reviews and save them in an album on my phone called Podcast Love in my photo app. And I look at them when I'm sad. So thank you to everyone who's already written one. If you want to see the places where these interviews take place, along with my other outdoor adventures, you can follow me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram or TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. 
And if you go there and you click on store, you can check out t-shirts and tank tops with a little bear with the poppies on them and be all set up for summer. Also, just a reminder that this was going to be the last episode in season two, but then I decided to split it into two episodes. So now it's the second to last episode in the season. After part two of Urban Ecology, I'll be taking a break to continue traveling for interviews and preparing for season three. And thank you for waiting a little longer than usual for this episode to come out. The trip to Humboldt was a big success with seven interviews in the span of five days, all on topics that I know you're going to love when they come out in season three. But now let's get to the episode. Miguel Ordeñana is an environmental educator and wildlife biologist. He works at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County as a senior manager in the community science office. As a community science senior manager, Miguel promotes and creates community science projects and recruits and trains participants. Miguel utilizes his mammal research background by conducting urban mammal research in LA and leads the Natural History Museum's Southern California Squirrel Survey and Backyard Bat Survey. Miguel serves as an advisor on a jaguar project in southwestern Nicaragua that he initiated in 2012, as well as a board member for the Friends of the Griffith Park and National Wildlife Federation. Miguel is dedicated to making science and access to nature more equitable with a goal of increasing the representation and retention of underrepresented communities within the environmental field. He holds a bachelor's degree in environmental studies from the University of Southern California and an MS in ecology from the University of California, Davis. He's also the scientist who first discovered there was a mountain lion living in the second largest city in the country. So without further ado, let's hear from Miguel Ordeñana on Golden State Naturalist. I met up with Miguel in Griffith Park on a warm summer morning all the way back in August. Miguel, decked out in a Save LA Cougars cap and a t-shirt emblazoned with the words Wildlife to Watts and a cartoon P-22, pointed out various LA landmarks and neighborhoods as we hiked a wide trail overlooking the city. Below us, just beyond the chaparral ecosystem of the park, we could see the LA River, downtown LA, and the city's suburbs sprawling as far as the eye could see. Once we'd walked far enough to get the lay of the land, we found a shady spot on the edge of a trail under some oak trees to sit down and dig into our conversation. As you listen, remember that despite Griffith Park being the largest urban wilderness municipal park in the country, we were still in LA. So you'll hear occasional sounds of the city, but thankfully none of them last for long. Let them draw you into the park above the city with me and Miguel. Sitting there when we got settled under the oaks with mics clipped onto our collars, The first thing I wanted to know was how Miguel became interested in ecology and the story of how he ended up doing his work with the Natural History Museum of LA. Yeah, thank you for for coming out to Griffith Park, one of my favorite places to visit as an adult and and when I was a kid. So I grew up right across the street from Griffith Park. It was just a really unique experience for me. And even within my own family, it was a pretty unique situation. A lot of my family lived in Hollywood, more urban parts of LA, and then later a lot of them moved to like Palmdale, Lancaster, the suburbs of LA, and we lived, yeah, right across the street from Griffith Park, and and we moved there because my mom was going to school full-time at LACC, and then also at later at USC, and then working full-time in downtown, and so 
she knew LA pretty well because she also grew up in LA. And she said, yeah, let's move here. When we moved to LA after my family, my mom and my dad split, like we lived with my aunt for a little bit in Hollywood in her apartment. And then when my mom kind of got on her feet, we moved to, to Griffith Park neighborhood, Los mm -hmm. Feliz. Literally the intersection of Griffith Park and Los Feliz Boulevard, if you're familiar with LA. We lived in these, this big peach apartment building called the Rexdale Apartments. I think I just drove past there. Yeah, almost everybody, it's hard to miss. Yeah. Um, and so, it was awesome because Griffith Park was my local park and like a lot of people have their own pocket park in their neighborhood sure. and I had that and my mom would take me out there and taught me how to play catch there. We'd have family picnics there, um, hike to the Griffith Observatory mm. and I mean I became I mean quickly jaded. I was like I'm not, I don't want to hike anymore, Mom. Like, <laughs> and then she'd like lure me up there, like, we're not going to eat this, this El Pollo Loco dinner <laughs> till we get to the top of the hill. Like, right, Dragged right. you out. And we had these really, really, all these accidental encounters. We never went out there to identify plants or explore nature, but nature was obviously all around us. And we had an encounter with a snake once, a rattlesnake. And my mom was like, petrified. Oh, yeah. And like, yeah, very protective of me, as you can imagine. Uh -huh. And then also coyotes would roam through our neighborhood that used Griffith Park likely as their core uh, habitat. And they would just roam, roam through our neighborhoods. And so I'd have that those encounters like making me kind of continuously curious about mm -hmm. how these animals are surviving in the city when my only other exposure was either going to the zoo or the Natural History Museum mm -hmm. um, or watching TV or cartoons that would usually showcase these larger megafauna a lot of times from Africa or mm -hmm. places like Yellowstone even if you'd watch a documentary or check out a zoo book at the library a lot of those animals were pretty exotic and nothing really was being showcased from my neighborhood so and even if a coyote would pop up in on tv it'd be like a coyote in Canada or a coyote in Yellowstone or something like that so anyways the point is that it was just enough of an experience to keep me curious and I'd have my dog bring in a baby possum or my dogs would get sprayed by a skunk oh. and so I'd have all these regular weird interactions with wildlife that I would think as positive or sometimes negative and the most memorable one was when my first pet, it was a cat named Whiskey, was killed by a pack of coyotes. And so it was one of those moments where, I mean, before that, I was like, oh, coyotes are pretty cool. And, mm -hmm. and then after that, I was like, man, coyotes are something to be reckoned with, basically, mm. like if you're a pet owner. And nobody was telling me, like a lot of people tell you now, like keep your pets indoors, mm -hmm, right. keep your dogs on a leash, all those types of things. I didn't grow up like that either. My cats were all outdoor cats. Yeah. That's just the way we did it. Exactly. Back then. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that's that's how I learned and and it was a memorable moment and I take that with me all the time and as a relatable story when people are like really like reluctant to keep their cats inside or keep their dogs on a leash. I'm like, yeah, like it seems like they're happy out there and they likely are but there's consequences like you're putting your cat at risk with coyotes out in the neighborhood or in the ecosystem but also you're putting native birds mm -hmm. and and lizards that they eat that are not adapted to defend themselves against cats mm -hmm. and even the most lethargic fat cat is a really great predator and it can do a lot of damage to the ecosystem 
have to take a second here to talk more about cats. So I've had cats and loved them my entire life. And currently I have a 16 and a half year old old lady cat who has been literally the singular consistent part of my living situation for almost two decades. So when I was 20 years old, my wonderfully spontaneous friend Ashley and I decided to move to Seattle, kind of just for fun, but also so she could be closer to her Canadian boyfriend. Hi, Chris. Anyway, we both got jobs and worked and went to school up there, but we didn't know anyone besides each other. And she would often go visit her boyfriend in Canada on the weekends. At the time, I was in a long distance relationship that was a bad fit for me, so I was deeply lonely and writing a lot of sad poetry and asking big questions about things like gender identity and faith and heartbreak. And I didn't really talk about my problems with anyone because I liked to seem like I was doing okay, which was of course a problem because I didn't let anyone help me. So I did what any reasonable person would do in this situation and decided to solve my problems through pet ownership. I went to the shelter and got an adorable, feisty little tuxedo kitten named Wendy, who became the most consistent companion I would have for the next 16 years. And this cat is incredibly shy, and my friends don't believe me that I have a cat because she hides whenever they come over and they've never seen her. But every night as I'm falling asleep, she cuddles me under my blankets. And she reminds me of my friend Ashley, who actually passed away more than eight years ago now. So my cat has been an incredible comfort in my life through that and just all of the challenges and changes that a lot of us experience throughout our 20s and 30s. I could easily fill the time of so many podcast episodes elaborating on all of that, but I wanted to tell at least a truncated version of that story, because I wanted to be clear that pets mean a lot to me, and this cat in particular means and represents a lot to me. But y'all, despite all of this, she's still not allowed outside. And that's for two reasons. One, it's super dangerous for cats out there. Outdoor cats only live an average of two to five years, while indoor cats typically live 10 to 20 years. And two, according to the American Bird Conservancy, outdoor domestic cats have contributed to the extinction of 63 species of birds, mammals, and reptiles in the wild. And they're also putting a lot of endangered species at increased risk of extinction. Cats aren't native to North America, so our wildlife here didn't evolve with cats putting evolutionary pressure on them, meaning that they're just not adapted to these kinds of predators. And when we introduce house cats into our ecosystems here, they wreak havoc on our birds and other small animals, which includes even the most well-fed cats. They just have a very strong drive to hunt, even if they're not particularly hungry. So if you have a kitty, do your cat and all your local wild critters a favor by installing a catio or using a leash for any outdoor adventures, or just keep them inside. I didn't know any of this as a kid, and neither did Miguel when he lost his cat, Whiskey, to that coyote, which is why he now tells the story about his cat to help both pets and wildlife while also relating to other people who love their pets. But sharing that really personal story a lot of times helps. And so anyway, kind of moving forward a little bit, I decided that I liked animals from a very young age. I, I didn't know really how to explain my passion. I mean, how it started. I don't know if it was watching a certain movie or, or reading a certain book, but it was deep. And I, I always wanted to spend way longer at the zoo or the naturist museum or just out on our porch looking at 
wildlife use my neighbor's backyard at night than the average person mm -hmm. and my mom was like definitely kind of recognized that mm -hmm. and nurtured that so that's something that I had I had a lot of privilege with that with respect to that I had my mom but my family in general was very supportive mm -hmm. of my passion and wasn't I mean they did question me from time to time and most of that like the teasing and all that stuff would happen like with people my with kids my age mm -hmm. and my cousins and stuff like that but all like my aunts and my dad and my mom and were all very like open to whatever I was passionate about and it happened to be animals so and that's not the case for a lot of people and Right. growing up so yeah and, um, and it's also not the case for a lot of people in LA to have that nature exactly. in their backyard or a lot of people in cities in exactly mm -hmm. yeah it's not very very common and that's not that was also not the experience of my family and so they couldn't really relate to those connections that I had and their parents weren't often taken to the zoo or, or the Naturalist Museum to the point where they were very familiar with what was in there and then conservation issues facing African animals and those things that were kind of being featured in, in the zoo or the museum setting. And so it was great, but it was kind of a passion that I kind of kept to myself um, because I was teased and at school or within my own family. But I just kept nurturing it in my own way as, as much as I could, but it didn't really allow me to be the most enthusiastic student until I had opportunities to study stuff that I was excited about. And so I was a mediocre student at best, and then my mom kind of was recognizing that and was like, hey, like, I got to find something for my son. <laughs> and so she found the student volunteer program at the zoo where if you got in, you go every weekend for about six months or so, and you learn about animal zoology and wow. about the animals on exhibit, how to not only learn about their biology and their zoology, but how to talk about that to the public, kind of learn science communication. And so I did that and I like really kind of soaked all that in. I loved it and I excelled. I got, did really well on all the exams and it gave me that confidence that, hey, yeah, I guess I can be a good student. I can potentially do well if I, when I go to college so insightful of your mom to recognize yeah. that like if you had that experience <laughs> that that would trigger something for you yeah so um, yeah again kudos to her finding that and pushing me to do it and also to the zoo for for giving me that opportunity I was not competitive amongst all the other applicants and they mm -hmm. they even told me that they're like hey your grades aren't like close to all the other applicants but we're gonna let you in anyway because mm -hmm. we can see that you're really passionate about this and they made the right decision. And so it left a big impact for me that really kind of carried over into college. And I really did well in college and studied biology and then switched over to environmental studies to have an interdisciplinary focus. Because growing up in LA and having all these random interactions made me want to not just study biology, but also more so human interactions with wildlife. And so that was kind of something I was always looking for. And so environmental studies was one of those majors that really kind of allowed me to, to explore that mm -hmm. uh, from a social standpoint, from a wildlife conservation standpoint. And so that led to another random opportunity that I actually found myself when I was at USC for my undergrad. I saw a poster on the wall to study abroad in Africa. And it was a dream of mine forever. I thought it was just an unattainable dream. And I applied and I was able to use the scholarship funding I had at USC to go towards that. And the courses counted so that I was on track to graduate. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. Like, yeah. 
It said wildlife management experience. I didn't even know what that was. And went out to Africa. My mom cried her eyes out oh, uh, yeah. at, LA, at LAX oh because God. she all she knew is what people talk about on TV mm-hmm, about sure. Africa. And, and also there was like a little bit of civil unrest mm-hmm. um, at the time in uh, Kenya, which is where I was going. Mm-hmm. But I went anyway and it was really eye-opening it was obviously the most inspiring place to do field research on mammals because they have the most iconic species out there but also a really great place to take a deep dive into human wildlife conflict because we were living in an area that was in within the territory of the maasai tribe who are local pastoralists indigenous to the area and had constant conflict with with wildlife Mm. and for me but previous to that i was taught like oh people who are killing wildlife are just really selfish people Mm. and just we got to put the wildlife first they're endangered some of them are endangered species can't afford that and ignoring the whole social aspects of that and so it was a really great opportunity to understand like why the social injustices that the maasai were facing and why they were retaliating against animals that were damaging their crops or using it as a way to send a message to the government that was basically treating wildlife better than they were treating their own community, mm-hmm. their own tribal communities mm-hmm. and giving them the wildlife access to water and not the tribe's access to water oh, wow. uh, to survive, to feed their cattle, etc. Mm-hmm. And so it was great to see both sides of that because even though it was all the way out in Africa, I think a lot of that still stays with me. All those lessons I learned about kind of really generally hearing both sides of the of the story and not just jumping on the side of the animal and automatically, because even if I end up kind of choosing the side of the animal, at least I have a little bit more empathy. I'm able to, to fr- easily figure out a compromise that allow people to at least listen to my side of the story versus talking about wildlife or being protective about wildlife in a way that's really, I wouldn't say isolating, but in a way that creates more of a separation between the conservation community and the social justice community, etc. And another really unexpected moment was like the professors that worked there and that taught us all our courses were local Kenyans that mm-hmm. had a non-traditional route to their careers. A lot of them started late in their life, had a lot of obstacles, came from extreme poverty, had nobody in their families that did anything remotely similar to them, and eventually got their masters or their PhDs and are now leaders in their field. And so for me as a person that also felt as as an outsider, I was in this program with mostly all white students. Mm -hmm. It made me feel like this career was attainable. Mm -hmm. And I also had a role to play. And that these local Kenyans professors had this unique skill to not only study the wildlife that they grew up around, but also to talk to the local community members and really share how these wildlife species are relevant to their lives and important to their lives are worth coexisting with because they're part of those tribes. They grew up in those areas and they have that local knowledge that someone dropped in from America or Europe would not have. And so anyway, that is something that was really inspirational for me and i was inspired to go even further than my undergraduate career and get a master's degree because of that 
because they're like, hey, if you really want to kind of make a career out of this, you got to get at least a master's degree. And so that's what I did. But I was way behind all my peers. I was in Boy Scouts, like a lot of my peers were. I didn't have field experience and other than that experience in Africa. But I had this this tenacity that and this drive that I think helped a lot. And my mom's work ethic as someone who raised me and went to work in school full time. She didn't give me many excuses. And so I, I immediately like Googled like what internships are there for someone with my experience and can't just kind of go to Africa and, and do that for, for mm-hmm. someone for free. And I ended up finding the Student Conservation Association internship. Mm-hmm. SCA is also what it's known mm-hmm. as. And, uh, they gave me an opportunity. What they do is they pair you for with a wildlife research project with an agency. Uh, in my case, it was the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, and I helped with the Desert Tortoise Project. Oh, cool. And so they gave me immediately hands-on experience doing field work in Southern California on a threatened species, um, tagging them, tracking them with telemetry, taking blood samples. And then eventually like they hired me on full time and I outcompeted some of my peers for those jobs that had more experience than I did. Mm-hmm. And so that was really motivational for me to say, hey, I can, if I work hard enough and I pay attention and, and network, like I can make something out of this. and. What they kept telling me though was like, you need a little bit more experience to be competitive for grad school because that was my goal was going to get my master's degree. And, and so I was able to get that experience and then was promoted to a crew leader with the, on the project pretty soon after and then moved over to another project studying bobcats in Southern oh, California. Nice. And so that's where I got into urban ecology work, which is just definitely my sweet spot. And I've never left ever since. And so... Um, once I got that opportunity to move over to that project, I decided, hey, this is what I want to study. Once I get into grad school, this is what I want to study. Mm-hmm. I want to study urban carnivore research and conservation. And fortunately, like the people that I worked with previous to going to grad school were open to the idea and helped me accumulate data for, the, for my thesis. And it was, yeah, just the perfect fit for me. And I think... A lot of people ask me, like, why urban carnivores? And at the time, like, my answer was really simple. It's like, urban carnivores are understudied. They're really interesting. They're elusive. And they're really interesting to me because I didn't know what a bobcat was. And mm-hmm. I never told anybody that. But when I first was told about this opportunity to study bobcats, I didn't know what that was. I knew what a lynx was, so I was like, uh, it's probably like something like a lynx. And then I just was immersed in the project, and I learned in the process of doing camera trap research. I learned about that technology for the first time, and, and that started so far back that it was actual film cameras that we were using, which is pretty That's like pretty crazy. to me still. <laughs> And, and so it was really cool to see that technology grow like mm-hmm. firsthand because I've been using camera traps since 2005, literally off and on. And, but also that the moment that was eye-opening for me was, yes, the bobcats. And then learning about the bobcat in that way, an animal that I would soon after learn that was in Griffith Park, in my neighborhood park. And we also had deer in this park. I knew what a deer was, but... I didn't know deer were in Griffith Park. Sure. I didn't know we had all these 
different types of squirrel species, including a tree squirrel species that is basically almost extinct from the LA basin. And all those little tidbits of information, I think everybody deserves to know and are incredibly, could be incredibly inspiring for especially young kids growing up in a city, knowing that these, these amazing species, and especially amazing species that need our help, are living right under our nose. So learning about the bobcat through that project was, in, was great, but it was also kind of upsetting because I had to wait till I was almost a wildlife professional yeah. to learn what was living right under my nose as a kid. You literally went to Africa like, <laughs> before yes. you knew what was in your own yes, backyard. Exactly. Which I think really reflects a lot of our experience. All the do- <laughs> like you said, you know, all the documentaries you watch. Yeah. So much of it is centered on that megafauna that yeah. is that you could put on a postcard, you know. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. And so now like my mission is to make these local animals as famous, as cool, as those classic African animals like the elephant or the gorilla. After getting his master's degree in ecology, Miguel worked on a few different projects studying various wildlife species like ground squirrels, goshawks, and spotted owls, not that far from where I live in Northern California. But he really wanted to get back to his home city, which finally happened when he had the opportunity to study the impacts of wind farms on bats with the U.S. Forest Service. And soon, he was living back in his home neighborhood of Los Feliz, right next to Griffith Park. From there, Miguel worked together with fellow biologists to start the Griffith Park Connectivity Study, which was able to get some cameras on loan from the USGS and start fundraising with Friends of Griffith Park. And Griffith Park is about eight square miles and surrounded on all sides by urbanization, by freeways on three of the sides, on the south side bordered by Los Feliz Boulevard and a sea of urbanization to the Mm -hmm. south. And so basically an island. And so a lot of local wildlife biologists, even urban ecologists, really kind of wrote it off because they thought, oh, it's an island. So it might be helpful for some species, but for wide ranging species like the ones you study, Miguel, it's really, you're not going to really find much. And it's not really going to be a great resource for any wide ranging animal. And so I was like, hey, I wasn't satisfied by that. And Mm -hmm. so we came together to to kind of see what the connectivity situation was in Griffith Park and if Griffith Park really was an island or not. And so we put cameras up on freeway overpasses that went over the 101, freeway underpasses or equestrian tunnels that went under the 5 and the 134 freeways and just monitored them to see if wide-ranging animals like deer, coyotes, bobcats that we knew existed in the park were able to successfully get in and out of the park to reach the resources that they needed, like mates and, and new territories mm-hmm. to disperse to. And all of those cameras put up by Miguel and his team saw some incredible signs of connectivity, including the first images of the cat that would later become the world's most famous mountain lion. Hear that story and so much more from Miguel after a quick break. Welcome back. When we left off, Miguel Ordignana and a team of biologists were trying to figure out if Griffith Park in Los Angeles was an isolated island of inaccessible habitat or if it was connected with other areas. Within a few months, we got our answer. We got deer crossing over the Coenga Pass, which is the 101 freeway. Um, we like had on the freeway or over the bridges oh that goodness. went over the freeway. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So there's little narrow sidewalks on these bridges and they were like using those, but sometimes just walking early in the morning or late at night, right 
through this along the road that went over the freeway. And then the equestrian tunnels, we saw bobcats and coyotes and occasionally deer. So yeah, we got our answer and it was really exciting to share that and, and maybe use that as inspiration to expand mammal research in Griffith Park and even smaller open spaces that are being discounted and disregarded. So then in February 2012, we got the ultimate proof of connectivity. We had a mountain lion show up on one of our cameras and I was the one in charge of kind of deciding on the placement of the cameras, checking the cameras, basically helping with the design of the study and then kind of having a back and forth with my colleagues. And we decided that we wanted to monitor the crossings, but also locations just beyond the crossings that are on the edges of the park. It's just to see if these wide-ranging animals are at least approaching the edges of the Griffith mm -hmm, Park mm -hmm. and what species are brave enough to do that. And so on one of those cameras that was right above the Ford Theater, which is on the western boundary of the park, right against the 101, on a ridge line, we got a mountain lion butt. Um, so <laughs> I was like looking at my, my, the footage as I did every time I would come back from the field. I was really impatient about it. I was like, I gotta see it now. Like, I, uh -huh. And so I was always hoping to find a gray fox or a bobcat. I never ever found a gray fox till much later after the study was over. But we got bobcats often, some really beautiful shots a lot of times. And so I was just really curious and went through rabbit photo after rabbit photo. Hmm. And sometimes you get the grass triggering the camera. Oh, just sure. like going through all these photos. Sometimes it's a thousand photos per session. And I had like my own process of doing that. And I was kind of getting bored of it. And all of a sudden this massive puma butt <laughs> comes across my computer screen. I'm like, Oh my God, I jumped out of my moment? seat. I was yeah. like, it was, was it, like, at first I was like, is that a great Dane? Because people would often walk their dogs sure. in front of my cameras. And I was like, no, like, as so I went a few photos back, came back to it and it was just undeniable. It was a mountain wow. lion, the tail, the color, the size, the paw pattern. And then also the park service would later tell us like, even with that photo alone, we could tell it was a male or a mm. female because it has a little black dot under the tail oh. that only males create after spring, that's mm -hmm. the residue that they leave behind. So I had all this information right then and there and I was speechless, but then I was like, my first reaction, I gotta tell somebody, I gotta tell somebody my colleagues and so then I look for my phone and it's not in my pocket and I'm like where's my phone and it's in my car so I ran barefoot two blocks to my car and <laughs> grabbed my to put phone shoes on. no no there's no need for <laughs> shoes no time and I called my colleague Dan and an errand nobody picked up I left frantic voicemail messages and I called my wife just to tell somebody what I found and she didn't pick up either. oh no <laughs> So I had all this really like important information, at least for yeah. me. Um, it was like I found Bigfoot or La Chupacaba for the first time and nobody was there to listen. And literally, I say that a lot, but it's the truth because a lot of people would claim like mountain lions live there and there is zero evidence. And the evidence that would be shared would be like a photo of their cat or a bobcat <laughs> right, or right. a coyote. And so it was just so incredible. And the, the thoughts that went to mind first were like, is this animal going to survive? How did it mm -hmm. get here? How are people going to respond to it being here? And so like the next step was to let the National Park Service know um, who had been studying 
our local mountain lions in the area since 2002 and say, hey, like, this is geologically the eastern end of the Santa Monica Mountains mm. here in Griffith Park. And there's a mountain lion here now. So there's a lot of reason for y'all to come out here. And they did not hesitate. They came right out, right out here. They trapped in local department water and power property uh, within the park mm -hmm. uh, near the reservoir, Hollywood Reservoir. And they trapped him in three weeks. And they put a GPS tracking device on his neck. They took blood. And the blood was really important because the blood told them where he basically came from. Because they had this long-term study, they were able to match his blood, his DNA, with previous study animals. So in they know study. who his family is. Exactly. Is so cool. they found out who his dad was. Wow. And his dad was P1, uh -huh. which stands for Puma 1. Okay. And to give you some context, mountain lion, puma, cougar, catamount, panther, they're all the same animal. Mm -hmm. It has so many names because of its wide range. Mm -hmm. And it goes through so many territories and cultures. And because of that, it has so many common names. But anyways, they use P to stand for puma and the number to stand for the sequence in order of when the animal is captured okay. compared to others. Mm -hmm. And so P1 was the first one to be studied. He was the large, one of the largest males ever studied. And his life basically summarizes all the unfortunate things that are going on with this population. So his dad, P1, would kill his own mates. He would kill his own offspring. He would mate with his own offspring. He would kill other males. And he would use the entire Santa Monica Mountains recreation area west of the 405, which is about 200 square miles of space. And typically, that's, that's totally normal. Most male mountain lions use about 200 square miles of space to have the resources that they need, have the space mm -hmm. that they need. But this is not just any kind of territory. This area unfortunately is packed with other mountain lions because they have nowhere else to go and so other males that would naturally be more distant from each other are now sharing this space and developing this this hyper territorial behavior mm -hmm. and that is definitely was the behavior of this individual p22's dad p22 um, was the name given to the griffith park mountain lion that um, I discovered because he was a 22nd puma mm -hmm. found and studied, and they're now at over 100 oh, to wow. date to give you a sense of how many yeah. mountain lions. But is P22 the only one in LA? Like in the middle? Uh, yeah, in the middle of the city of LA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wow. is. There was one in the Verdugo Mountains that they were studying, which is Glendale, right, just right on the edge of the next range over here. Okay. You can actually see it. And that one was studied for a while, a male out there. I think his name, yeah, P41, I believe his name was. Um, and so, but other than, yeah, those two individuals, those are the, like, they're kind of unique individuals. P22 is still alive today. When I spoke with Miguel in August, P22 was still alive, still living in Griffith Park. In fact, just the day before this interview, the LA Times published an article about the mountain lion being seen on some doorbell cameras in the Hollywood Hills, close to Griffith Park. And whenever I think about this interview, I like to imagine that P-22 was watching, that he saw Miguel and I walk into the park that day before ducking away out of sight, keeping his distance from humans as he always had. I know it's unlikely, it's a big park and he was probably napping when Miguel and I spoke, but I still like to hold on to that idea because 
as you may have heard, P22 passed away back in December, just a few months after I spoke with Miguel. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. First, I want you to hear the story of P22's life. He was born in that range because of what his genetics kind of connect him to. So he was born west of the 405 freeway, where his dad lived his entire life, at least when he was studied. And so that means that P-22 had this difficult decision to make, which was to fight his dad or whatever resident male was in the area for that territory or leave. And he chose to leave. And that's a really dangerous decision as well because two, at least two other mountain lions tried to make that journey east and were killed immediately on the 405. And a lot more were killed in other crossings of the 101. So for him to successfully not only cross the 405 freeway and then go through Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Studio City, all these fancy neighborhoods, then cross another 10-lane freeway. I don't the, even like walking through Beverly Hills. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's scary. <laughs> then you cross, and you have to cross Mulholland Boulevard, which is really dangerous, windy road that you can't basically skip over. And then crossing the 10-lane freeway, the 101, to get into Griffith Park was just a journey that no other mountain lion had ever made and was so unfathomable for local scientists that they thought it was almost an impossibility for a mountain lion to reach Griffith Park, mm -hmm. ever. And so and that's kind of what everybody's mindset was because we were just following what, what was um, generally accepted as the truth based on what we knew about mountain lions and their sensitivity to freeways, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so, so to find him there, to see the journey that he made, and then now to learn like that not only did he make it, that he was able to survive there. Mm -hmm. And he was able to coexist with thousands of people in this park so every wild. single day. We have houseless populations that live here. We have night hikers. We have people of all ages and hiking abilities and using every inch of this park. Mm -hmm. And I have footage like to prove like how he's able to kind of deal with that. And I have him like just hang out in front of one of my cameras. And then less than 30 seconds later, there's a hiker right in front of that same camera. And so he obviously has opportunities to interact with people, but he's choosing not to. Yeah. And it shows that it is possible. If you give him the opportunity to avoid us, to have a little bit of refuge from us, we can coexist in a park that is a tiny, tiny fraction of the size of what a normal mountain lion needs as mm -hmm. far as territory. 200 square miles versus eight square miles here in Griffith Park. A fraction. Yeah, That's and fraction. of that eight square miles, a lot of it's already taken up by residential property, two 18-hole golf courses. We also have pony rides, train rides, picnic areas, uh, theater, Greek, the Greek theater, the, um, the, an observatory, a zoo. So yeah, even within the eight square miles, a lot of that is disturbed or developed. And so there's only so much wilderness that he's able to use and hide in, but he's still doing it. And probably up to like last year, probably only a handful of people have seen him hmm. um, in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, <laughs> last year he decided to go through uh, Silver Lake neighborhoods uh, to the south, which is really urban, wow. a couple times, and a lot of people saw him. Yeah. Um, we're still not sure why he did that, but, um, have you but we're glad him? he went back. Have you ever seen him in person? I've, uh, when he was captured to put uh -huh. the collar on him, I was able to see him during oh, that process. Cool which cool that is, you got to go for that. It was just amazing. Yeah, like it's is one of those moments where you're you're seeing this animal in your local park that you grew up going to, an animal that you'd never expect to see, especially as a kid, but even as a professional that mm -hmm. has 
a really deep knowledge of urban carnivore ecology and an animal that was thought to be out of place. Mm -hmm. But then you see it in this grass, especially at the time it was really brown, dry grass, mm -hmm. and he blended in perfectly. And it shows you that, that this animal belongs here and we deserve to let him um, live here if he wants to. Mm -hmm. Mountain lions have been here since the Ice Age. And I work at the Natural History Museum, who also um, runs the Librea Tar Pits. And we have records of mountain lions in our tar pits that go back over 30,000 years. Wow. And being found living alongside those other big cats, like the saber-toothed cat, like the scimitar cat and the American lion, etc. If you haven't listened to the La Brea Tar Pits episode of Golden State Naturalist yet, check that one out next. The person I interviewed was Sean Campbell, and he actually discovered one of the very few mountain lions ever found in the tar pits. So mountain lions have a very long history in this region. And this is the only large cat that survived the Ice Age extinction. Mm -hmm. So for it to survive the Ice Age extinction, I think proves that it's doing its best and it's been successful for all this time at surviving under less than optimal situations and environments. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, this superman or superhero of, of the cat world that can adapt to live in deserts, wetlands, coastal areas, mountainous regions, you name the habitat and it's been able to survive there, has finally met its match, it's kryptonite. And it's us, it's our freeways, it's our way of life. And as a result, it's, it's about to go extinct. Mm -hmm. After all that work, after all that evolution, after all that, that adaptation, it really can't survive for much longer if we continue using this space and sharing this territory with it as we've as we have been and so and thankfully scientists have been take, gone out going out of their way to study this and confirm this with scientific data that they are not successfully crossing these roads and freeways they're becoming genetically isolated and they're also facing other dangers like rat poison exposure and hyper territoriality at a level that's that's unsustainable and unnatural and now even seeing the biological defects of inbreeding as well and so all that's kind of coming to a head and is going to push them to extinction here locally uh, within the next 50 years according to local research and so we have this huge cloud over our heads p22 was sadly not exempt from the myriad threats facing mountain lions in highly populated areas after making his incredible, unlikely journey, crossing two freeways, and then managing to coexist with humans for a decade in a territory much, much smaller than that of a typical male mountain lion, or any mountain lion for that matter, P-22, who was elderly for a wild mountain lion at around age 12, started to behave strangely. He killed a small dog when, in the past, he had been able to survive on larger game like deer and coyotes. Wildlife officials saw this as a sign of deteriorating health and decided to capture and evaluate him. When they did, they found a cat 35 pounds under his usual weight with kidney disease, a parasitic skin infection, and head trauma likely caused by a vehicle strike, among other problems. And the decision for a compassionate euthanization was made on December 17, 2022. 
It was a heartbreaking day for people around the world who cared about P-22, including the many Angelinos for whom he had become an unofficial city mascot. But as tragic as this story is, I also find it really hopeful how much people have rallied around the story of this cat and taken his life as a call to action. To be honest, like we should be ashamed of ourselves for putting mountain lions to this breaking point, but I'm glad it's been a call to action. And I'm glad that certain people, or a lot of people have responded in the way we should have a long time ago at trying to make these mountain ranges whole again and giving them the open space that they need, choosing to coexist with the ones that are sharing space with us. And yeah, investing in, in their future, mm-hmm. which is not just their future, but it's all of our futures because they, their presence means a healthy ecosystem. It means a, a optimal quality of life for the wildlife that live in all these ecosystems. And that includes us as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really inspired by that. I'm bummed that it took so long and that it took this desperate situation for us to finally make a change. But better late than never. Probably the biggest, most visible example of this kind of change comes in the form of the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing over the 101 freeway, which I asked Miguel about. How is that going to help? Like, is that going to help animals like P-22? Just maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, another benefit of of P-22's story that's huge is that his story has been so inspiring that he has been the catalyst for an important conservation movement that will save the local mountain lion population from extinction. Since 2002, the National Park Service has been gathering evidence that has been very clear and pointing towards a certain location where wildlife have continuously tried to cross from both sides of the 101 freeway, from the north side and from the south side, because they have been GPS collaring a lot of animals, mountain lions, bobcats, coyotes. And so figuring out what that choke point is was the first step. But then getting the word out and making people understand the relevance and importance of it was the second step that was didn't get a lot of, I don't know, momentum, I guess mm-hmm. you would say. And so even though this idea was clear, the solution was clear, getting people behind it from diverse communities, from, I mean, from even a fundraising standpoint, was just not going well mm-hmm. um, or is not super successful. And so I think the fundraising to that point was just to kind of continue to support that research, but not necessarily actually invest in the solution Mm -hmm. um, the way it needed to be invested in. And so then came along p 22 story, and his story really summarizes all the struggles that a local mountain lion population has gone through. He has gone through a lot of misadventures even after he made that incredible journey crossing two freeways. So his story already started off with the connectivity issues that our mountain lions face by doing the journey that he did and sharing that with the public. Then him coexisting with the public, thousands of people every day, and doing his best to survive, but still not staying out of danger because we couldn't stay out of his way by putting rat poison out in the ecosystem and him nearly dying from that Mm -hmm. or surrounding him under a house when he was taking a rest during the day and Mm -hmm. trying to stay out of sight, Mm -hmm. surrounding him with media helicopters and vans and, mm. and wildlife officials. And fortunately he survived and escaped that situation safely. But they're all lessons that we need to do better. And knowing that he's attached to this population to the West that is imperiled and almost going extinct. And so them kind of associating his story with theirs has really inspired people to want to figure out a solution so that 
another mountain lion doesn't have to go through what P22 did mm -hmm. or worse. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really great to see the people rally behind that from diverse communities and also the campaign being led in a certain way that is proactively engaging different communities mm -hmm. because everybody deserves to be part of this process. These open spaces are for all of us, mm -hmm. not just for the communities that live there around those immediate neighborhoods. And I think more and more people need to recognize that before they can embrace it and want to protect it, to know that it's there, first of all, and that it's for them, and then why the animals in there are important and we want them to kind of continue to survive. And then all these other little tidbits of information that have popped up, like LA being one of only two cities in the world that have large cats living within their city limits. Whoa, the other is the other Mumbai, one? India. Are you serious? And they have leopards and that's it. Wow. And so I think the fact that we have this rare, unique situation mm -hmm. and this long, deep history with mountain lions here in Los Angeles mm -hmm. is a sense of pride for people, that mm -hmm. people are starting to develop and is being nurtured. I think that has now led to finally a successful campaign to build a bridge, which will be the biggest wildlife crossing in the world and will save a lot of mountain lions and this population from extinction as well as other species that require connectivity throughout the landscape. And so I think it's just been a really inspiring process where artists, authors, the media have all really done a great job at making this story, P-22 story and the stories of all the other mountain lions more and more accessible and having this wildlife celebrity here in Los Angeles that everybody is rallying behind mm -hmm. is really helping a lot of species and the future of our local wildlife. And it just broke ground in April, 20, April 2022 and is going to be built in 2025. That's so exciting. And 90 million dollars raised wow. for a wildlife crossing and for us to make such an investment in wildlife is just really really sending a statement to the world and to other cities that mm -hmm. also could do better at coexisting with wildlife. That if LA can do this and preserve the future of their wildlife and and invest in wildlife, other cities should be doing it as well and creating their own bridges and, and improving connectivity throughout their cities. And also if a city like LA can coexist with the mountain lion in the middle of the city, other cities I hope will also think differently about wildlife, not as always a threat. And there's some parts in the state where, or excuse me, the country where mountain lions don't exist anymore because of their perception of mountain lions, their relationship with mountain lions, and just because you have, you raise livestock is not an excuse to not have wolves and not have mountain lions. Because there are solutions, there are ways to coexist, and there's reasons why we should be coexisting. Mm -hmm. I find it really encouraging that when people found out about P22, they got excited. You know, it yeah. seems like that was the overwhelming response. Like, did you have any backlash of people being like, oh no, we can't have this cat here? Um, there were a couple people. I, mm -hmm. I would say, I mean, in my inner circle, it was about five mm -hmm. people. And almost all of those, each of those individuals, when I talked to them about his ecology and general mountain lion behavior mm -hmm. and some of the statistics of mountain lion attacks, and they really like changed their point of mm -hmm. view. And especially as P-22 has continued to survive and coexist with people without incident. It seems like it's going um, great. Yeah. It's, it's possible. And yeah, there are attacks here and there, but they're very rare and, mm -hmm. and usually under really specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. And there's measures you can take to increase human mountain lion coexistence and improve that. And 
things you can do to your own landscaping and, mm -hmm. and uh, when you're out on a hike, if you see a mountain lion, what you can do. We could easily do a whole episode just on coexistence, but let's just do a quick overview of what to do if you encounter a mountain lion, which is really, really unlikely. And the only person I know who's seen one in the wild literally lived in a state park at the time. But it's still a good idea to be safe so that you don't panic if you do see a mountain lion. Okay, so this information is taken from a National Park Service page called Your Safety in Mountain Lion Habitat. And it says if you see a mountain lion, the most important thing to do is to stay calm, not turn your back on the lion, and stand upright. You shouldn't approach it or run from it. You shouldn't crouch down or bend over. You can either hold your ground or back away slowly. Again, usually these animals want to avoid us. And even though I only know one person who's seen a mountain lion, I bet that a lot of us have been seen by a mountain lion. They just don't want to be seen by us. Anyway, I'll link this NPS page in the show notes in case you want to read more about it. So there's all, there's all these resources available. I think once people have those resources, especially basic information about mountain lions and how mm -hmm. big they are, what the, their behavior is and all that kind of stuff, I think a lot of people are, are more willing to do it. And also mm -hmm. having, of course, P-22 has this case study. Yeah. Is, is he's, just cool. he's just cool. He's just cool. Yeah. Like, and it's just, it, it's... That's something that people can rally around and be proud yes, of. That's, yeah. that's great. And that's been the case for sure. I love that. How does the story of P-22 and other large carnivores, urban mountain lions, these kinds of animals, how does that compare with the other types of wildlife that are existing in big cities like this? Yeah, mountain lions, I mean, are unique because compared to other urban carnivores. And this is something that came up a little bit in my, my research uh, for my thesis, which is that Although there are a lot of urban carnivores of varying size and, and ecological roles, they all respond differently to the urban environment. And a lot of that is because of their size, their behavior, what they eat. So a great comparison is a raccoon versus a mountain lion. A mountain lion, like all cats, only eat meat, so they're obligate carnivores. Unlike a dog species or raccoon or prosyonids are, are eating a variety of food resources. Some are even human subsidized resources like garbage, leftover food, fallen fruit from your fruit tree in your yard. And as a result, they're able to take advantage of, of more space. If you're a smaller individual, like a raccoon as well, you're less intimidating, for one. So the perceptions of, of a raccoon versus a mountain lion are a lot different. It's not seen as a big threat. And the other thing about size is that you don't need as much space to get the resources that you need to stay alive. And that not only includes food, but also shelter. So a raccoon can live its whole life under an apartment complex or sure. a dumpster. Mm -hmm. A mountain lion, because of its size, needs somewhere to hide that's big enough obviously to fit its body mm -hmm. but also because it's this really large controversial animal and that is really perceived as a threat to people and it has to live in an area that is also big enough to sustain a deer population mm. and deer are big animals that need a lot of space as well and so all these things have to fall into place for a mountain lion to survive and the other thing is the behavior so a raccoon Although it's technically a solitary animal, it's very behaviorally plastic, meaning that it can really 
-hmm. adjust its behavior depend to adjust to its setting. Same coyotes are very similar. Mm -hmm. And so they'll live together, they'll cooperate with each other or tolerate each other at least. Versus whereas a mountain lion are solitary and really do not like being around each other, especially when resources are limited. And as a result, you can pack in a lot fewer mountain lions than you can raccoons. So if we end up hitting a raccoon on the road or, or a couple on the road, that's going to have a smaller dent on that population than if you killed a couple mountain lions. Mm -hmm. That could be half of the population right there, especially in an urban area. Um, I mean, so many people have seen raccoons in their backyard. Yeah. So many people have seen like skunks yeah. and possums and all those animals. But I don't think I know anyone who's just like seen a mountain lion exactly, walking exactly. along. Mm -hmm. And then another part of that behavioral plasticity that mountain lions do not have that period and bobcats have a little bit more than mountain lions but not much more and why that is limiting is because even if there is habitat around they'll choose not to use it because they do not feel comfortable around a certain amount of people or a certain amount of human activity or a certain level of cover um, especially during daylight hours and so as you continue to develop um, and not even just develop, but like allow for more increased activity in an area, especially at night when they're doing all their work, the animals are doing all their, their nightly duties. You're pushing them to come out later and later, which gives them less time to find mates, to find food and all those types of things, which really is unfortunate. And mountain lions will not only have to come out later, or they might just have to live somewhere else mm -hmm. or try to live somewhere else. And then that causes them to try and cross roads or freeways, et cetera. And then that's it for them, right? Mm -hmm. So so those are the key differences between urban mountain lion, which really never become an urban, like have a different behavior versus like urban coyotes that you probably heard about, read about that can adjust to the urban environment like in Chicago and Los mm -hmm. Angeles, where they're seeing walking through through neighborhoods weighing and, and understanding the traffic lights and understanding what green versus red means wow. and then crossing safely and still silently elusively using that space without people seeing them versus a mountain lion doesn't even feel comfortable attempting that and it's a really traumatizing experience i'm sure coyotes aren't 100 percent comfortable when they're in those situations but somehow they're able to adapt and there's a reason for them to push themselves and take that risk because they can eat a lot of things that we have out and available in the city. Mm -hmm. Like our garbage that's left with the lid open or our cats that we leave out or small dogs that we leave out versus a mountain lion, that's not enough reward for mm -hmm. that type of risk. And so those are the main big differences mm -hmm. between how a mountain lion adjusts to the city versus a coyote. And that's why you hear less about mountain lions adapting and, and colonizing in the right, city. Sure. Maybe they'll be passing through, mm -hmm. but doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're coming in, they're invading our space. And I think another thing about it is that is kind of getting blown up out of proportion is that mountain lions have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. But recently we've had advancements of technology and the accessibility of doorbell cameras like ring doorbell cameras and nest cameras and even camera traps that the, like the ones mm -hmm. i share today are cheaper and easier to use and people are putting out in the yards and so more and more people are seeing them now and posting them on social media and creating this this story that mountain lions are 
coyotes or any of these animals are now invading our space or now um, more common in urban areas when they've been here for a long time mm -hmm. we just haven't noticed it because we don't we didn't have that doorbell camera before they're not going to do it when you're standing there yeah they're gonna they're gonna go when yeah. they don't think you're there which is when the camera is gonna yep, pick them up exactly that yeah so i think that's another thing that that we need to consider Okay, there are so many more things left to consider, which will all be included in part two of this episode. So make sure to come back next time to hear more about urban ecology from Miguel. In the meantime, I would so appreciate it if you could share this episode maybe with a city-dwelling friend who cares about animals or ecosystems, or maybe someone who followed the story of P22 or anyone who might be inspired by hearing the story of a non-traditional path to working with wildlife. Something interesting from my week is that my whole family was so tired today that we ate cereal for dinner on a picnic blanket in our front yard. Honestly, it was glorious. I'm envisioning a spring and summer full of yard dinner picnics. Okay, thanks for listening to the very end of the episode. I'll see you next time on another episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye! The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.